Welcome to Radio Kemp. You are listening today to our Call to Action podcast series, where transformative ideas from our annual Call to Action conference come to life. Join us on our journey to change child welfare to a child and family well-being system rooted in community, economic, and social justice. Welcome and welcome back. This is the Call to Action podcast series on Radio Kemp. I'm Kendall Marlowe with the Kemp Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Child Abuse and Neglect. Thank you for being with us. This past fall, the Call to Action to Change Child Welfare International Conference brought together over 2,000 of us. And now through this podcast, we get to continue the conversation, continue that call. And today on Radio Camp, we're in for a treat. We're in for a treat. We get to spend some time with Patty Chin. Patty, how are you? I'm good. Patty, you did a session, a keynote session at that conference that I am not going to forget. Let's help our listeners get to know you a bit. And let's start with where are you? I'm going to tell you I'm just outside of Denver, Colorado. Where are you today? I am currently in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, very close to inner city. Baltimore, Maryland, not too far from Washington, D.C., if I have my geography right. That's right. It's about an hour drive away. So why? Uh, Why are you there? Did you start there or was there a bit of a journey? What happened? Yeah, no, I love this question. Um, I did not start here. Um, I was born and raised my entire life in Hawaii, um, specifically Honolulu. And then when I turned 18, I moved to another island. We we like to do that. We like to island hop before we make bigger transitions. Um, so for the last eight or nine years, I was living on Kauai, but still in still in the state of Hawaii. Um, and just last July, actually, I had taken the big leap to move myself and my family to Baltimore, Maryland, um, because we had I had a job opportunity to work at the Annie e. Casey Foundation. Um, to me, it just made sense professionally to really take this leap to gain more knowledge and insight on how things work on a national level, as I was very deep in the local things that were happening in Hawaii, especially around child welfare. Um, and it also seemed like a really wonderful opportunity to do something different with my family. Most of us who are born and raised in Hawaii, we never leave. Um, it's it really is a scary thought of us like living anywhere else. And you do un- I, you do understand though that those of us who have seen the pictures would understand why people would not leave there. You you yes. get that right? Yeah. Yes. No. The beaches and ev- I mean it's wonderful. I mean I I miss it today being gone almost coming up on a year now, but. I, I think for me, having a eight-year-old daughter, I also wanted her to experience the different communities that are there and just have something different than what I had growing up. So you just name-dropped the Annie E. Casey Foundation. There's a lot of people uh, who have a lot of respect for the work that's been done there and and who might think that you must have a really pretty cool gig. But back to the, the child welfare part of this story, uh, how did that happen? Uh, take us from the beginning. What's yeah. the journey to this work? Yeah, I actually have um, six and a half years of lived experience in Hawaii's child welfare system. So from the age of 10 to the age of 18, where I'd aged out of the system, which I know now you're thinking, how did she just say six and a half? 
and she just listed 10 to 18. There are segments in my story in which I actually achieved reunification. I wasn't in foster care. So there was, there's moments where I actually am not in the system as an adolescent uh, between the ages of like 13 and 16, kind of around that time, which makes the total six and a half years. Um, And I mean, I feel like many other young people, the experience was not great. Um, And I remember turning 18 and wondering like, what was next for me? What was life? And so many people never told me the things that you would tell a 17 or 18 year old, like go to college. What do you want to do with your life? I really felt like I was living one day at a time, just trying to survive from one day to the next. Um, And one day I had met this adult who was like, hey, there's this local youth leadership board who uses their experiences to help shift policy and practice within child welfare. I thought it was a load of malarkey. Um, I was like, if no one listened to me when I was in care, no one's going to listen to me now that I'm out of care. Like, there's no way. Um, And again, just like taking the Annie Casey job, I took that leap to see what it was about. Um, So from the age of 18, I remember September 2013, I joined the local youth leadership board and I had been an advocate from then on out. Um, I had actually aged off of the youth leadership board when I turned 26 because everyone can stay on until they're 26. There's an age range. And we did that purposefully because we wanted young people, new young people to come in to share their experiences and for us to really realize like we're at an age where we were more mentors than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, I ended up getting a job with the agency that held the contract for the local youth leadership board. And I've just realized that like social services was a field I was meant to be in, like doing this work, helping other young people realize their potential, creating shifts and movements in policy and practice. Like that's where I wanted my legacy to live. So creating shifts and movements when you're setting off now to be an advocate, what did you learn? What was your experience like? What were the lessons that came from that that motivate you now? You know, I think the biggest one that I carry with me so often um, was that you have so much power. I have so much power. Um, Everyone has so much power in just their voice and their experience. And that's something that I hold really deeply Um, because for a really long time, I just thought that I was the most powerless and helpless person there could be in the world. Like there was nothing I could do to create change or shift what was happening. Um, And now I hold that close because someone had given me the opportunity to speak out and to share Um, that you do have power as long as you use your voice and you share what's going on and what you'd like to see change or make different. You have all the power in the world. So for me, it's that, but it's also helping. It's the potential in others. I think too often I've gone through life with people barely seeing me at what I could do best. And then all of a sudden there was someone who was like, this kid holds so much potential. I know, I know I'm 18, so I was an adult, but someone had actually envisioned me as a successful, thriving, no longer living day from day person. And I hold that now that I can see that for everyone else as well. I can see potential in others and I just want others to see their potential, to see what it is that they want to do. I don't think social services is it for everyone. That's probably one of the biggest differences that I also take as well is I don't push social services onto other young people who've been in child welfare because it's done often, 
but I hold the possibility for people to recognize potential. That is, that's interesting. That's a very interesting distinction that you just made because that's been my observation as well, is that when someone pipes up and says, I've had this experience and there are lessons to be learned here, we immediately think, fantastic, a new social worker <laughs> who can join our committees and go into this field as a work. But uh, that's a very interesting distinction you've made. I, I, I think you're right there. So how, how did you move from that personal experience, that journey, that discovery of your own voice to something called a soul family. How did that happen? Yeah. You know, my advocacy journey didn't stop at a local level. In 2016, I was nominated as the young person to be Hawaii's representative to attend the National Youth Leadership Institute with the Jim Casey Initiative. Um, Biggest honor you could ever receive. I mean, all of the people who had been a part of my local advocacy journey as role models had pretty much become a Jim Casey Young Fellow. And I was like, that's it. Like, this is the next step. So in 2016, I attended the week-long training and I had an opportunity to then apply to become a Jim Casey Fellow. Uh, so in August of 2016, I became a Jim Casey Fellow. And that's when uh, advocacy then became not just the local in Hawaii, but national as well. Um, I want to say about a year in, I had the opportunity to uh, be an advisory committee member. And this is a committee made up of uh, one person from each of the 17 Jim Casey Initiative sites, uh, fellows, um, who basically serve as like the right-hand person to the uh, president or director of the Jim Casey Initiative to really figure out what are the steps we're taking this year forward? What are the things we need to focus on? And that advisory committee, I remember the first meeting we had, we talked about permanency. Um, we looked at the data nationally and 16, 16 years and older, young people in foster care were not achieving permanency um, at a rate of almost 50%. And Many of the young people in the room, including myself, weren't surprised because we felt that at 16 years old, we were kind of placed in this bucket of, well, we only have two more years. So do we really choose permanency um, and possibly give up all the benefits and resources we would have if we've aged out? Um, or do we choose those benefits? So really, we're faced with this problem of like, you know, we're 16. Who's going to a lot of us were like, who's going to want to adopt us at 16? Legal guardianship ended at 18 for most of us. And then many of us also struggled with the, I need the resources to survive and thrive as an adult because no one was doing that for me my entire childhood. There's no one who's going to show up when I turn 18 and say, here's all your college tuition or here's all these opportunities. Like I have to make this for myself. Yeah. Um, and it was in that conversation that many of us had also started to analyze our own permanency journey. And we had recognized that there just wasn't a permanency option that addressed the complexities of our relationships um, while we were in care. Because then we also realized that as adults, because many of us were in our 20s, close to 30s, we had permanency. Nothing that was, of course, legally uh, seen or recognized by the government or by law, but we had permanency. We had people we could rely on and call at one, two o'clock in the morning, people who would provide us a home, people's homes that we go to for Thanksgiving and Christmas. But it also felt junk knowing that 
legally it wasn't recognized that we had family because we had aged out of the system. Um, So we had decided that a fourth permanency option was needed to really change the game and provide young people with another option, not to be a golden bullet or a magical ticket that we'd wave around in the air, but to just give young people another option, especially those older young people who felt like they were stuck in this, what do I do? Um, But in doing that, we also recognize that adoption, legal guardianship or custodianship and reunification, they do work for young people. They just need a little shift. We need to create more of a change so young people are more informed of what that means with those permanency options. And young people are the drivers in making that decision for themselves rather than adults making that decision for them. And adults uh, adults have all kinds of ideas about this, don't we? Uh, so there you are creating new, more creative permanency options. But doesn't all this have to be vetted? And don't we have to do home studies, Patty? And don't we need to check for safety? Because safety, 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 safety. What about all that? Oh, yes. No, for sure. You know, it was it's a it's quite a ride for Soul Family. I had the privilege to be involved in really the development of it from its early stages until where it's at now. I, I feel like I've really seen this through pretty much the entirety of the way. We're now, I think, four years in. It's been quite some time. Um, and in the initial phone calls, we were working with a lot of legal experts like Jennifer Pokempner from Juvenile Law Center, yep. um, people from KVC, um, to figure out like how would this work realistically, like what it would look like. So a group of us had gotten together and we had shared all the different ideas, our own experiences about like what did it look like when we were placed in a new home? What were some of the things that called hinder that caused uh, hinders or challenges to arise when it came to selecting a family or achieving adoption or guardianship. Um, I think one of the longest conversations we had was around safety was around how do we have young people choose who's their permanent family? Because do young people, you know, it's the common conception of do young people know what is good for them? Right. Um, (laughs) Do they? Do they, they, Patty? I mean, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, many of us also had children. So we then started to think about our own children. We're like, well, if our child was 12 or 14, like, do we think they would make the best decision on the adult in their life? And we're like, probably not. But then we started looking at adolescent brain science and development. And 16 felt like a really solid age in which young people could make a sound decision about who's the adults that they need in their life. More so than that, we also recognize the uh, background tracks and the trainings that needed to happen to become a sole uh, person. That would still stay, but we also felt that there were other things that happened within current existing structures where like, Someone had shared um, they really wanted their grandma to be a foster home for them. But unfortunately, grandma had done something that was on our record from 20 years ago. Right. And because of that, she was never able to be seen as a as a person, as an adult in her life that was safe, even though it was done so long, long ago. So the things like that, where we want more flexibility and, and, and more ease and making sure that we do recognize that a young person has people in their life already. And how can we make sure we are helping them stay connected to them? And part of this concept you have of a soul family, um, P- Patty, I did a, 
um, was lucky to do a Radio Kemp podcast interview a little while ago with Christopher Church, and we were talking about termination of parental rights and whether that was even necessary. And I told a story of how my wife and I took a 15-year-old girl into our family who, 34 years later, is still our daughter, yet her father never left her life. Her mother had died very suddenly and tragically, but her biological father never left her life. So she ended up with three parents and it's worked out fabulously well. And all three of us still love her to this day. Is that okay? Could child welfare do that? Is What do you think? So that's what we're hoping with Soul Family. Um, there's there's three, three or four major things that we wanted um, as a 16-year-old reflecting on our permanency journeys. One of them was we didn't want our biological parents' rights to be terminated because we felt that you were really severing our bonds with our biological family, who many of us just go back to when we age out anyways. Um, the second thing was we didn't want... Um, this option to be to end like guardianship does at 18. We wanted it to be legally recognized as something that was long-term. We also wanted access to the benefits and resources that you would receive if you had aged out of foster care, knowing that there's a little bit more complication in that because that's, that's money. Um, And we also wanted to just be the drivers in the seats. We wanted to be the ones who are making the decisions or informing what should happen going forward. But I definitely think you can have more than one person, two parents. We know in in a, in a nuclear family, it's two parents, but you can have more than that. And in Hawaii, we have this concept called Hanai family. Um, So while I have a biological mom and dad, there was also aunties and uncles down the streets who were also my mom and my dad. And my mom and my dad knew that I called them like mom and dad, that they were second mom and dad. (laughs) And it wasn't a problem because they knew that this was people who were taking care of me. These were people who loved me. These were people who I was safe with, where I felt like I could belong. And it was never seen as an issue. And I think that it's possible if we just get out of the way of typical parents, I'm thinking about like foster parents and, and and biological parents, if we can just remember that at the end of the day, if we can't get along, it's the young person who's harmed the most. If we can get that out of our minds and push past that, the young person wins. The young person uh, wins. Wow. What about siblings in all of this? I noticed that when we talk about children's rights and a kid's journey through the system and whatnot, um, we love that individual kid. We want to defend that individual kid. We're a champion for that individual kid. But many of us are joined at the hip, forever joined with brothers, with sisters. Was that a part of your journey? And how do siblings and their interests, their rights play into all this? That siblings were a huge part of my my journey. Um, I'm one of six. <laughs> I'm the middle girl of six. I have an older sister, a younger sister, and then three younger brothers. Um, you know, and being from a big family, living in Hawaii, uh, it was really hard to find a family that would take in all of us. We were fortunate that 
one foster home was willing to take in all six of us, but it was not a good foster home. Um, so we were then fortunate enough to get out of that situation. But then again, we were just placed in all separate areas of the island. So there's so many gaps in my memories of my siblings where I don't know what they look like. I don't know who they lived with. I don't know what they went through. Um, as And as an adult, it became really hard trying to rebuild a relationship with them, knowing that no one had helped us navigate our trauma together. So how do I, as a 22-year-old, reconnect with my 18-year-old sister, knowing that as an older sibling, I had felt that I had failed her in responsibility? So there's so much, there's so much things. Um, I'm happy to say now that we're all very much connected with one another. Um, we talk to each other on a regular basis, FaceTime, we play games with each other, and they're heavily involved in my life, which I could not be more thankful but it was hard. It was hard. And it was also realizing and getting past the, it was forgiving yourself as an older sibling. Um, for us, that was also one of our biggest reasons to not wanting any termination of biological rights, because we felt like with adoption, um, you lose that, you lose that connection with their siblings. Many young people who had achieved adoption had also then talked about how their siblings personally was like, I don't know how I'm connected to you. I don't know how I belong to you anymore because you chose this new family. Um, and that's not what we want our siblings to feel because we're, I mean, really the bond is there as much as, as much as we might go through sibling rivalry or hate each other every now and then the bond will always be there and you're always going to be able to rely on your siblings. Um, but we also recognize that we wanted to make new relationships as well without severing the current ones we had. So our hope with Soul Family is that without severing the biological parental rights, um, and without it being like adoption, where it's really like a clear, you have this family, this is your new family, here's your adoption certificate, like the whole nine yards. Um, it'll be more of a circle of caring adults. It'll be a community of people wrapping around this young person that this young person has chosen. It is my parents, it's my siblings, it's my auntie, it's the teacher down the road, or it's my pastor who I've known for the last 10 years, just really recognizing that naturally we create these bonds that last a lifetime and we have these bonds that last a lifetime and how do we legally recognize that um so hopefully so family will that'll push through with so family that's an absolutely beautiful and eloquent call to action at each end it really is thank you for that so where is soul family at um where does it stand is it going to be happening around the country? Are you going to be getting on that train from Baltimore to D.C. and making all this happen? Uh, help us understand, where where do we stand? Yeah, so right now, currently, um, I'm really happy to say that we're working with uh, the state of Kansas as our first demonstration site um, to really figure out what are the nuts and bolts and pieces of policy and practice that need to change to make Soul Family real in a state. Um, as well as also recognizing that it's not just about soul family, it's about strengthening the existing permanency options as well. So really, while we want to pass soul family, what are the other things we have to look at for existing permanency options in this state to make that just as strong? Um, I think we're coming in May of this year. We'll be one year into working with Kansas. Um, we've formed different work groups to focus on 
uh, data and research communication. So people are aware, like we're just trying to figure this out. It's not real yet. Um, because people are very excited about it in Kansas and, and they think it's an option already, but it's not. So we have to like, hang on, you know, let's (laughs) stay, stay calm. Let's, let's get through this. Uh, we have a legal and policy group and then a practice and implementation group working to figure out what those changes need to be. Um, all of that being informed by Kansas, really. I mean, it's one of the biggest teams I think I've ever worked with. We have about 13 or 14 young people with lived experience. And when I say young people, it's relative because I also call myself a young person. <laughs> and I realize I'm like 27. So I'm like, am I, you know, I might have to <laughs> change that a little. Um, but young people, we have uh, birth parents who with experience. We have uh, child welfare involved, community-based organization as our partners to figure out all the things that we need to do. So really the community uh, is involved in this. And hopefully this year, we're hoping to get to a point where we're talking more with young people who are currently in care, with foster parents, with more birth parents um, as the work is progressing. You know, I would love to say that I know as, as I'm listening to this, it's like, why not just go on a federal level to like make this happen? Um, And realistically, it's because we would like to show first that like, here's all the things that would need to take place for Soul Family to be real, Um, especially uh, when it comes down to money as well, because we know there's going to be some uh, financial implications for Soul Family. We want to figure that out before we take it to really a federal level of like, how do we move this in every state? The ultimate goal, though, is that Soul Family would be something that existed in all 50 states. We just want to make sure we can figure out the pieces that need to go behind it first. Thank you, Patty Chin. And can I make a request? Mm-hmm. Uh, would you come back uh, down the line a little bit? I don't know when, year from now, whenever it might be, a couple years from now, and continue to take us on this journey and let us know how it's going so we can all be a part of it? Would you oh, come back? 100%, 100%. 100%. Um, you know, I said earlier that I was involved from really the, like it's birth stages of Soul Family and being able to see where it's at now, seeing a state actually take this on and make it real. Um, this is one of those things that's in that's in my legacy. And I, I can't believe that a former foster kid from Hawaii has had a hand in helping develop something that really I think is going to be a game changer in permanency and just how we help young people achieve that. Well, you made us believe it. Thank you, Patty Chin. Thank you. And and uh, we will have you back. We will have you back. Uh, keep us in touch. Keep us posted. Thank you, Patty. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners as well as we continue this journey together. Join us again, everyone. Join us again and soon. This has been the Call to Action podcast series on Radio Kent. Thank you for listening to Radio Kemp and our Call to Action podcast series. We invite you to continue to be an active part of changing child welfare. For more information about how to stay connected with Kemp's efforts, you can learn more about our annual virtual Call to Action conference and this monthly series at www.kempconference.org. Again, that's www.kempeconference.org. Until next time.